You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. We believe it. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for everyone who is here today, those who are watching online, and I just pray that right now, Holy Spirit, as we were just talking about you, now we get to talk to you. You're here. You're with us. And I pray that you will help open up our hearts and our minds to the reality that Jesus is alive and that we will not just receive this uh, in our brains and try to process it in our minds, but that this will be something that settles deep into our hearts and that we will learn to live as a resurrected people, that we will learn how to live as an Easter people in a world that often feels like Good Friday. I ask this in your name and authority, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Earlier this week, I was coaching my uh, son's 10-year-old soccer team, and I was Somehow I got in the conversation with these boys about what I do for a living, and I made a remark about how because the week had been abnormally busy, that I had not been able to work on my sermon for this Sunday. And without any hesitation at all, one of these 10-year-old boys looked at me and said, Coach, it's Easter. Just preach the resurrection. And I was like, yeah. And like immediately I was just like, I felt like the pressure had been like turned down. Like, yeah, that's it. Like, like that's all I have to do. Like, all I have to do... It's just basically preached the same message I preached last year and the year before that and the year before that, the same message that pastors all across the world are preaching. And so on the one hand, to preach an Easter message is quite easy. But on the other hand, it presents, I think, some significant challenges. One of them being the fact that though I know there are some of you in here today who have had your life absolutely transformed by the resurrection of Jesus. So there are some of you right now who sit here with a heart swelling with joy and excitement because the tomb is empty. I know there are others in here who have heard some version of this resurrection story year after year after year, and yet you remain unchanged. You remain somewhat indifferent or apathetic. And so, yeah, you play along, like you play the game. You come in here, you wear your Easter clothes, you sing your Easter songs, you go through the motions on this Sunday, but you're like, I have no idea how this actually makes any difference at all on a Monday. And if that is where you are this morning, I just want to first off say welcome. I am really, really, really glad that you're here. 
And then secondly, what I want to do is I just want to ask you a question. Because, you know, the reality is, as you know, we're going to look at the resurrection story. And what I want you to see is that if you don't believe the resurrection story, you still are believing some story. And so the question I want to ask you today is, what story are you believing? So we all believe stories about life. We all believe stories about why am I here. We all believe stories about sexuality and relationships and money and, and, and where do I think I'm going to go when I die and, and how do I experience the good life and happiness. We cannot not believe stories. You're going to have to put your faith in some stories, what I'm saying. And the question I'm going to ask you this morning is not, are you believing a story, but what is the story you're believing? And then secondly, I want to ask you this question. Is the story you're currently believing strong enough to take you where you want to go? Is the story you're believing right now, is it a story that is producing joy in your heart? Is it a story that's producing peace? Is it a story that's producing meaning and purpose and fulfillment and the hope, or if you can be honest, is it a story that's leaving you a little bit disappointed and maybe even depressed? You see, because we live in a fallen world, we live in a world that has been broken by sin. And because we live in a world that has been broken by sin, here are three realities that I often see, not just in our church, but in people all throughout the world. And it's these realities. It's that one, suffering is unavoidable. Two, that oftentimes for people, satisfaction feels unattainable. And three, shame, unshakable. And the good news of the resurrection is that it actually speaks to all three of these areas. To suffering, to satisfaction, and to shame. And so if you're here this morning and you are suffering, maybe you feel like you've been punched in the soul, like you're in the middle of brokenness, the resurrection story is for you. If you're here this morning and you feel unfulfilled, if in the words of the great Bono from YouTube, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, the resurrection story is for you. Or if you're here and you were barely able to put one foot in front of the other and actually talk yourself into coming today, if you find yourself crippled by shame, if you feel ugly and unwanted or unlovable, the resurrection story is for you. And so with that, I'm going to invite you, let's just look at this story, Matthew 28. And the first thing I want you to see is how the resurrection of Jesus brings good news to those who are suffering. In chapter 28, verse 1, it says, After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, how do you like that title? It's like we actually don't even know who that is, just, we just know it's Mary. Uh, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And so notice, Easter morning does not start with a resurrection. Easter morning starts with a funeral. It starts with loss. It starts with grieving. It starts with these two women who have lost their best friend. And as a result, they are walking on this first Easter morning, and they are walking in darkness. They are walking with disappointment. They are walking with doubt and possibly even depression. I mean, these are two women who went all in on Jesus. These are women who gave up their family and their friends and all that was familiar for Jesus. These are women who were crazy enough to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the long-waited Savior. And now this Savior has just died an excruciating and humiliating death on a cross. And because of that, there are good chances or there's good reason to believe their hope has now been buried with Christ. This is the ending to a story they never saw coming. 
And maybe some of you can relate with these ladies. Some of you in here, you have been shocked by bad news. Some of you in here, you have experienced excruciating loss. You've endured tragedies. There are times where some of you in here that you have prayed and you have prayed and you have prayed and you have prayed and nothing happened. The healing did not come. The marriage was not restored. The kid did not give their life to Jesus. And so because of that, there are some of you in here today, my guess is, if you can be honest, who have asked God, God, are you really who you say you are? Because I'm reading one thing here, but I'm seeing another thing over here, and the two don't really seem to match up. Some of you have had moments in your life where you feel like the rug has been ripped out from underneath you, and now all that is left is a heart full of grief and a head full of doubt. You know, I remember the first time that I was confronted with the reality that I live in a fallen world marked by suffering. I was in kindergarten. And my friend Justin, who I bonded with over Ninja Turtles and Juice Packs, my friend who I would pretend to be G.I. Joe's with or learn Foursquare with suddenly quit showing up to school. And it was because he had been diagnosed with what my parents told me was this thing called leukemia. And to me, I didn't really know anything about leukemia. I just knew that apparently it was some sort of disease that made him lose his hair. And so Justin would show up less and less and less, where eventually I never saw him again. And I remember my mom coming into my living room that we lived in, and she said, Jared, I, I'm sorry to tell you this, but Justin's died. And, and I don't remember what else she said after that, but I remember crying, and then I remember having this thought. The God that my parents are telling me to pray to is a God that I cannot trust to keep bad things from happening to me. Jesus said himself, in this life you will have many troubles. That is a guarantee, guys. Whether you are a Christian or not, you need to know God will not always pull you out of your pain. He will not always eject you out of your troubles. But here's the good news. He promises to parachute right into the middle of them. Jesus promises to walk with you even through the valley of the shadow of death. And on Easter, we remember that this death that he's talking about is a death that Jesus not only endured, but he conquered. See, every one of you in here, every one of us, me included, we believe a story. And only Christianity can make sense of your suffering. I know people who walk away from God because he didn't answer prayer, because they experienced suffering. And now what hope are you going to find? Now you're all torn up over your suffering. You don't know why, because this is all just random. And you have no hope beyond the grave. But Christianity provides a hope in the middle of your suffering as durable as the resurrection of Jesus. Because unlike any other religion in the world, our God is actually a God who is brave enough to take his own medicine. Our God is the kind of God who left a perfect place in heaven where he's worshipped perfectly by the angels. And he chooses, think about this, Jesus, by his design, is not born into riches or royalty. He is not born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Jesus, by his design, is born into a world of suffering. He's born into a family of impoverished refugees who were on the run because of a mass genocide. And Jesus, he didn't just experience suffering in his boyhood. 
He experienced suffering his whole life. Jesus, the profession he chose was to work as a blue-collar carpenter who spent the first 30 years, 30 years of his life in relative obscurity. Nobody knew who he was. Nobody was impressed by him. And, and then, whenever he began his public ministry, he was homeless. Never even had a place to lay his head. Jesus experienced being betrayed. He was abandoned, and eventually he was crucified on the cross, despite the fact that he is the only person who ever, never once sinned or did anything wrong. Jesus knew pain, loss, hardship, hunger, and even death. And here's why that matters. is because if you're sitting here right now, and you're like, nobody gets what I'm going through. They don't know my story. Well, you're right, I, I may not. The person next to you may not. But Jesus does. Like, oh man... I've lost a loved one. Nobody knows what I've had to endure. Jesus says, I know. Some of you sit here and you say, man, I've been despised. I've been rejected. I've been humiliated. I've been overlooked. I've been abused. I've been abandoned. Jesus says, I get it. I've experienced heartache. I've experienced hardship. I'm experiencing an overwhelming amount of temptation. Jesus says, I can relate. And here's why that's significant. The Bible is clear that Jesus is not just a good man. Jesus is God. It says in the book of Hebrews, he is the radiance of God's glory. In Colossians 1, Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. What that means is, if you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus. And when you look at Jesus, what do we learn God is like? Well, listen, here's what the Christian God is like. You ready? The Christian God is the kind of God who cries at funerals. He bleeds when he's cut. And despite never sinning, he goes to a cross and he chooses to die for you and for me before we ever lifted a finger for him. And you see, what made Jesus' death unique is not that he died on a cross. A lot of people back then died on a cross. What made Jesus' death unique was that it was a death that was promised. So Jesus' death is not a series of unfortunate events. Jesus' death was promised by God through the prophets many, many of years earlier. I'll think of the words of the prophet Isaiah. I'll put it on the screen for you. Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, he prophesied through God. He said the following, Surely he, talking about Jesus, took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, listen to this, we are healed. Jesus came to this earth so that he could sympathize with you, but he did so much more than that. He came to this earth not just so he could sympathize with you, he came to this earth so that he could heal you. He came to this earth so he could save you, so that he could redeem you, so that he could forgive you, so that you can now, if you just trust in Jesus, if you just believe, you can experience in him life, deep life, full life, abundant life. Yes, if you follow Jesus, you will suffer. Yes, if you follow Jesus, you will die. But on the other side of that death is a resurrection and on that day when you are resurrected, you know what will happen to you? This is beautiful news today. All of the sin you struggle with is going to be washed out of you. And all sad things are going to come untrue. And you will, in the words of the Apostle Paul, on that day realize all of the sufferings you have been experiencing won't even be worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed. And so the resurrection of Jesus does not protect you from suffering. But what it does do is it makes your suffering sufferable. That's what David Brenner says. It makes your suffering sufferable because although the resurrection won't take your suffering away, it will give you hope in the midst of that suffering. And here's your hope today. Listen, your hope, I know some of you are like, why am I going through what I'm going through? Your hope today is not that one day darkness is going to be explained to you. 
Your hope is not that one day your darkness will be explained, but the hope is that one day the darkness will be completely defeated. And therefore, no matter what you're going through, here's good news today for you, Christian, your, bre- your best and your brightest days are still ahead of you. Darkness, no matter how dark it is, will not have the last word in your life. Christian depression will not have the last word in your life. Death will not have the last word in your life. How do I know? Because the tomb is empty. And so the resurrection, it's about suffering. But it's not only about suffering. The resurrection is something that is about satisfaction. You know, no matter who you are, where you come from today, here's something we all have in common. We all want to be happy. I want to be happy. You want to be happy. I think of the, the great philosopher and theologian Thomas Aquinas who once said, man is unable not to wish to be happy. Or one of my favorite quotes of all time, this is from the mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal. I've shared this before. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Happiness is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. And so the reality is we all want to be happy. The problem is, as study after study is showing, uh, happiness is on decline in America. Depression's on the rise. Happiness is on decline. And so despite the fact we're a nation that is built on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, happiness seems to be elusive. It's like a moving target. It doesn't stand still long enough for us to grasp. We're all chasing after it, but we can't ever really seem to catch it. And I believe a big reason for that is because we are looking for happiness in the wrong places. As it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher is talking about the dangers of of looking for happiness in things under the sun. And he uses this word to describe what a life is like chasing after things under the sun for ultimate satisfaction. And he says, the Hebrew word he uses is it's hevel. It's a word that means it's smoke, it's vanity. It's like a chasing after the wind. It's like, it's like fireworks on 4th of July. It, it goes into the sky, it blows up, it's beautiful, but then it's gone like that. And that's the way it is when we look for happiness in things under the sun as soon as we obtain it we're like wow and then the beauty and the wonder fade away and there's so many examples i could share of this i mean think about a house i gotta have a bigger house if i could just get a bigger house i'm gonna be happy and you get the bigger house and you're like oh we got so much stuff to take care of we need a new house with new appliances and all that, but eventually like the new wears off and you look at the house down the street that the person just built and you're like, oh, why didn't we do, why didn't we do that color brick? Fitness, fitness is a good thing. Try to take care of your body, but man, if you look to that for your ultimate source of happiness, like it'll give you some happiness in the short term, but eventually your body's going to betray you no matter how much kale you eat, right? Or how much yoga you do. Like, things do begin to sag eventually. You realize that? Like, things will fall apart. What about food? I love food. I'm a foodie. My wife and I have been uh, trying to figure out how to perfect the perfect gluten-free pizza for a year now. Some of you are like, that's the sign of a fallen world. Gluten-free pizza. Like, that should not happen. I agree. In heaven, one day, I'll eat all the gluten in the world. Um... But we're trying to perfect a perfect gluten-free pizza. And I'll be honest, like, I think it's pretty fantastic. We went to Hot Springs a couple weeks ago to eat at one of the best pizza restaurants in the nation. My kids said, Dad, your pizza's better than that pizza. So I might open up a a pizza joint if this don't work out for me, the preaching thing. And so, um, but pizza's great. 
right? We put all this work into it. We make the dough, like, you know, 24 hours in advance. We cut up the ingredients. We make our own sauce. We throw it in the oven at 550. We cook it, and then it's amazing for, like, 10 minutes. And then we've got to clean up the mess. And we feel bloated while we're doing it. Entertainment, success, approval, sex, accomplishments. It just comes and it goes. I was reading an article. I'm a UFC fan, and uh, don't judge me for that. I mean, I guess you can if you want, but please don't. And I was reading uh, about um, Israel Adesanya, who just won last night uh, the championship in the middleweight class. And in his talk, after the fight, all he could say was this, I just wish all of you could feel how happy I am right now. And I thought, well, we can't because we'll never be the greatest in the world at anything, first off. But then I thought, even if we could, that happiness won't last. Because one day, you, sir, are going to be just like the guy who you defeated. You're not going to be fast enough. You're going to make a mistake. You're going to get caught, and you are going to be blooded and broken and defeated. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Marriage, marriage is wonderful. Marriage is where we experience great friendship and intimacy. But listen, your marriage will not last forever. You realize that? Like one day you will be separated because of death. And because that is true, if you want to find true satisfaction, you want to experience true happiness, you need to root your joy in something that is eternal, that death cannot take away. And only the resurrected Jesus can do that for you. We see this right here in the passage in verse 5. After the women came to the tomb, there was an earthquake and an angel appeared. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus. You may not realize this. But you are all looking for Jesus. You're looking for it maybe in drugs. You're looking for it maybe in entertainment. You're looking for it maybe in sex. You're looking for it maybe in in, in experiences and vacations and grandeur. We are all today looking for Jesus. G.K. Chesterton once said, Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for Jesus. Do not be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified, verse 6. But he's not here. He's risen just as he said. He told you this was going to happen. Come and see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell the disciples he has risen from the dead. And going ahead of you into Galilee, you will see him. Now I have told you. Verse 8, so the women hurried away from the tomb. They were afraid, yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. In other words, you no longer have to live with this mixture of fear and joy because I'm back from the dead. You can have true joy, pure joy, undiluted joy, unfading joy, joy that is rooted not in your circumstances, but in me, the one who has conquered sin, death, and hell. One of the greatest myths in the Christian church is that this whole Christianity thing is about trying to be a good little boy or a good little girl. That all this is about is just trying to be a good person, to be moral, to not sin. As if God is some sort of celestial killjoy who's sitting up in heaven and being like, what sounds like fun? I know, having sex outside of marriage. So don't do that. Let me tell you, I've read this cover to cover. I've got a master's degree in theology, and from the best I can tell, This is not primarily about rules to be followed. This is about a joy to be found. 
and ultimately it is found in the eternal God, the one who not only is your salvation, but also your satisfaction. Jesus says in John 15, I have come so that you may have joy and your joy may be complete. In Acts 8, when Philip goes and preaches the gospel to Samaria, they believe the gospel and it says there was much joy in that city. So here's a, a little survey, a little kind of question you can ask yourself. How do I know if my Jesus is the real Jesus? How do I know if my Jesus is the real resurrected Jesus? There will be joy. There will be some happiness. I'm not saying you won't have grief. I'm not saying you won't have hard days. But there will be joy and happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction even in the midst of that. Two weeks ago, I went to Aldi to pick up something for my wife. Because I'm that good of a husband. And I'm there at Aldi. And I hear this man whistling obnoxiously loud. Because I thought to myself, nobody's that happy. And I round a corner and this, uh, eventually bump into this guy who's whistling. And I've got a picture of him. I'll put it on the screen. He's wearing a hat that says on it, I love Jesus. And by the way, in this picture, he's saying, you take my picture, I'll charge you a dollar. That's what he was saying. Uh, And here I am, I'm impressed with myself because I'm making a sacrifice on a Saturday to go to the store for my wife and I find out he's been doing it for years because his wife can't get out of bed. And he doesn't have a ton of money. His best years are behind him here on earth. And yet he has a level of joy that I'm guessing most of us know nothing about. Why? Because he believes that Jesus loves me and you so think about this as, as you think about this guy's name is James you think about James who I found out by the way after the first service that apparently is a phenomenal horseshoes player um, somebody ran into him um, there are some of you in this room right now you've got a lot more money than that guy has you're having a lot more sex than that guy is having. You're getting to still go on vacations. You've got your health. You've got your wealth. You've got entertainment. You've got vacations. You've got accomplishments. And you're still miserable. You're still empty. You're still not satisfied. And if that is where you are this morning, the best encouragement I can give you today is to look to Jesus. To run to Jesus, like these women in this story, to cling to Jesus, to worship Jesus, the source of all that is good and beautiful and true. So this is a story, not just about our suffering, not just about our satisfaction. It is about those things, but then lastly, it's also about our shame. Because we live in a fallen world, all of us have fallen. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all tried to choose our own way. We've all done things we should not do, and not done things we should have done. We've all tried to control things. We've all tried to put ourselves at the center of God's story rather than put God at the center of the story. We've all tried to say, I'm going to make this life about me and my agenda rather than God and his agenda. And because of this thing called sin, because of the things we have done and because of the things people have done to us, there are many of us in the room today who are living in shame with this deep sense that I am inherently flawed, unacceptable, and unworthy of love. 
I'm currently working my way through a book by Joseph Noss, and it's an incredibly raw and honest memoir where he tells about this time where after he spent the night with his friend Colin, Colin's mom gave him a ride to his pretend home. See, Joseph actually lived in a dilapidated apartment in the bad side of town with a roach-infested kind of apartment and, and a drug-addicted mom. But because all of his friends lived in the right side of the tracks, on the good part of town, they were upper-middle-class homes, he pretended he lived in the same place. So he would have Colin's mom drop him off at this pretend house in a nicer part of town, and then he would walk home from there. And that worked really well until one day uh, Colin's mom goes to drop Joseph off, and there is a Hispanic family in the front yard that clearly is not his family. And so she looks at Joseph in the backseat of the car, and she says, Joseph, where do you really live? And this is him talking. He says, with shame washing over me, I squeezed the muscles in my face as tight as I could to stop from crying. I pretended not to hear the question and simply responded with, thanks for the pizza. As I walked away, I thought about how I would never see her again and how I would never sleep over at Collins again, not after what had just had happened, not now that she knew. See, this instinct in Joseph is this instinct to hide and to protect himself. I don't want you to see my flaws. I don't want you to see my failures because if you saw my weaknesses, you would not love me. And this is the same instinct that is in many of us, like Adam and Eve in the garden when they sin, they run, they hide, they try to protect, they cover themselves with fig leaves because it's this idea of if I was ever fully seen, the good, the bad, and the ugly, then nobody would want to be with me. And if that is where you are this morning, I want you to hear these good news from Jesus in, in verse 10. Jesus said to them, who is the them Jesus is talking to in this story? Yeah, he's talking to the women. Why does that matter, Jared? Because women were a little bit better than dogs in this society. Women's testimony wasn't even included in the court of law. They were basically nothing. They were good for, 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 for carrying babies and, and cleaning. But that's basically what they were known for. Especially Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was, was, I mean, the least of the least of the least of these. I mean, she had seven demons at one point. She was considered a woman of the city. Many believe that she was actually the woman caught in adultery that the religious leaders wanted a stone. And isn't it beautiful that Jesus, of all the people he could have appeared to on this resurrection morning, he says, I'm going to show up to these women first. That's what Jesus does. Those who we consider are the furthest from the kingdom of God are those that he wants to lift up their heads and replace their shame with honor. He says to them, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, for there they will see me. Now, here's another question for you. When Jesus says, my brothers, who is he talking about? The disciples. Very good. The same disciples who just bailed on Jesus when he needed them the most. The same disciples who had just denied him. The same disciples who had just ran like cowards when they should have stood by his side. And what's incredible to me is that rather than Jesus holding this grudge against his disciples, rather than rubbing their face in their failures and flaws, in the only place I know of in all of the scripture, he calls them brothers. Why? Because what Jesus wants to make abundantly clear to me and to you today is that your relationship with him is not dependent on what you do for Jesus, but what Jesus has done for you. You realize today God's love for you does not rise and fall based off of your performance. 
God's love for you is not dependent on how good you are. It's not dependent on how impressive you are. And honestly, you're not impressive, and neither am I, not compared to a holy God. His love for you is not dependent on how impressive you are or even how moral you are. One of the things we love to do at our house is the Saturday before Easter, we watch Terrence Malick's film, The Tree of Life. It's one of my favorite movies. It's starring uh, Brad Pitt as Mr. O'Brien. I think I can put his uh, picture on the screen for you. And Mr. O'Brien, he actually has a good life. He just doesn't know he has a good life. He's so focused on everything that he doesn't have, he can't thank God for what he does have. Does that make sense? And so he has a pretty nice house, but it's not nice enough. He has a pretty nice car, but it's not nice enough. He has money, but it's not enough money. And then he has just the, the typical stuff. He gets so His grass won't grow. His grass in his neighbor's yard look great. He's like, because they got money. Our grass won't grow. One of his oldest kids is misbehaving. His garden is dying. He has planted a garden. His garden is getting diseases. And then eventually he loses his job. And there's a scene where after he loses his job, he comes home and tells his wife, and he's just walking around looking at his grass that he can't get to grow, and he prays to God, and he says, I never missed a day of work, and I tithed every Sunday. And then he walks around in the city, and I've actually got this, I've had it in a sticky note for, I guess, four or five years now in the front of my Bible because I resonate so much with it. Here's what he says, reflecting on his life. I wanted to be loved because I was great. A big man. Now I'm nothing. Look, glory all around me. Trees, birds. But I lived in shame. I dishonored it all. And I didn't notice the glory. Because he was so focused again on what he didn't have. Always trying to get more. Always trying to get better. And therefore as a result he says, I am a foolish man. I don't know about you, but this is a place that I'm often tempted to live. It's to believe this lie that my work determines my worth. That the better I perform, the more you will love me. And if you can relate with that at all, you know this is one of the most loneliest and exhausting and frustrating places to live. And if you want to break free from this cycle of shame, let me tell you what I have been slowly learning. And I'm so glad God has been teaching me this slowly over the last couple of years and especially the last couple of months. If you want to break the cycle of shame, here's the secret. The secret is not try harder to be better. The secret is not never fail again. But the secret to breaking the cycle of shame is realizing that even if you fail, your failures and your flaws still can't separate you from the love of God. That's the only way you will ever break the cycle of shame that is crippling some of you. To realize that there is no failure, no flaw that can separate me from God. My sins, no matter how bad they are, cannot separate me from the love of God. No matter how much shame, no matter what I've done or have not done, none of it can separate me from the love of God. In the words of the Apostle Paul, neither height nor debt, like nothing in all of God's creation can separate you from his love. And that is what we see on full display right here. Jesus says, go and tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. Why is that significant? What's in Galilee? Well, Jesus appears before them, and he gives his disciples the great commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, think about this. What Jesus does is after the disciples just made their biggest mistake, God assigned to them his greatest mission. After they just made the biggest mess, God said, I'm going to give you 
the greatest mission. And that should tell you everything you need to know about the heart of this God, a God who rather than kicking you when you're down will meet you where you are, redeem and repurpose even the most broken and jacked up parts of your stories. God really is like the ultimate Kintsuki artist. We've talked about that before, right? You know what I'm talking about? The Kintsuki art where they take these like broken pieces of pottery and they make it whole again by pouring the gold into the cracks. Oh, there's a picture of it. This is what the resurrected Jesus can do for your life no matter how shattered you feel. Rather than discarding the broken pieces of your life that you think is just nothing more than trash, he will take even the parts of you that you hate, that you're embarrassed of, that you're ugly and you think unusable, and he will redeem it. Like a Kintsuki artist, he takes broken vessels, and he not only makes them usable, he makes them beautiful. 